Chapter 14 of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 14 Death and the Watcher. And I, fire, acceptor of sacrifices, ravishing away from them their darkness, give the light, not a natural light, but a supernatural, so that though in darkness they knew the truth. From the Divine Dialogue of St. Catherine of Siena. The door of Mrs. Reed's flat stood ajar, and Constance, having rung the bell and received no answer, pushed it open and went in. The sitting-room was empty, and the chairs stood in disorder, as they had been left after the morning's class. She was surprised and uncertain as to her next action, for even were Helen absent, she had expected to find Mr. Reed dozing as usual before the fire with the blue Persian cat upon his knee. Whilst she stood considering the matter, Ra appeared from some recess of the establishment, and rubbed against her skirt with an excess of affection which suggested extreme loneliness, if not actual hunger and thirst. She stooped to stroke his head, and he raised himself on his hind legs to meet her hand, an unprecedented act of condescension. Then he purred twice, mewed once, walked to the closet door of the bedroom, and sat down on the mat. Constance knocked, waited for a reply, and then opened the door a little way, but Ra would not enter alone. He rubbed against her skirts with increased vehemence, and looked at her with imploring golden eyes. She opened the door wider, and then saw Mrs. Reed, who knelt before the gas-stove. Her beads and scarabs hung round her neck and jangled a little as she swayed to and fro. The air of the room was thick and hot, as if the stove had been alight for many hours. Constance, astonished, halted upon the threshold, and then perceived the huddled corpse in the chair. Sleeping persistently, despite the swaying wretched woman at its feet, death it seemed, extended his right hand very gently, and dealt a shrewd blow with his left, tearing away the tidy surface of existence, and disclosing certain raw realities beneath. "'What is this?' said the watcher. Constance whispered, awestruck, "'I think that it is death.' She felt his movement of withdrawal, but resisted it, saying, "'No, that would be cruel. We must not leave her alone.' Mrs. Reed stopped swaying and looked at Constance without surprise. She said apologetically, I found the door ajar, Helen answered in a slow, monotonous, explanatory voice. Yes, it does not matter. You see, I am quite alone now. Yes, quite alone. I went out to see if I were really alone, and there was nothing left, and then I thought, perhaps... If he wanted to come back, you know. But that's a mistake, too. I made a great many mistakes today. Of course, he's here. Oh, yes, he's still here. He is waiting. He does not like to go alone. I must not forget that. Constance, made stiff and awkward by her sensations of horror and amazement, moved towards her. But she raised herself upon her knees and shuffled towards the chair, she took one of the dead man's hands between her own and began to stroke it. One must hold on to life by something, she explained, as long as one can. 
yes, as long as one possibly can. Even by death, whispered the watcher. You see, he is all mine, quite mine. I earned for him and arranged things. People think me intellectual, but that is only for odd times. I always washed his hands and brushed his hair. I did keep him nicely, didn't I? His hair is wonderful for his age, so thick and silky. She played with it for a little while and then dropped it and said wearily, But I have nothing to do now, nothing at all, so that nothing really matters any more. Then Constance found the voice of conventional consolation and said, But you will always have a beautiful memory of the years you were together, of the happiness you gave him, and all you were able to do. You have nothing to be sorry for, nothing to regret. You loved one another so very well. Helen stared at her. Did we? she answered. Perhaps we did. And it is so much better for him to go like this, to be saved from all the weariness and pain. Is it? I don't know. I can't see any farther, said Mrs. Reed. Then she exclaimed in a tone of horror, It has all gone black. Once I believed in such beautiful spiritual things, I seemed to see them. I thought I should rejoice when he died. I always taught people to do just that. But now, don't you understand? It's this that is real. This, this. She clutched the dead man's arm, and the corpse nodded towards her, and then fell back in the chair with a soft thud. And it's going to decay. I can't believe it, but it will. I shall sit here alone, and somewhere in the ground, this will dissolve, and terrible things will happen under the earth, and it will go, and the bones that I have never seen will be left. I shall not recognize them, and they will be him, and the thing I know will have gone. The greedy earth will eat it. I can see that going on. As long as I live, I shall never see anything else. She spoke with passion, and Constance found no words in which to reply. The sight of Helen's neat universe abruptly ruined, appalled her. It seemed fatuous to offer hints of reconstruction in the face of so utter a wreck. She wondered whether life were full of such events, of mistaken creeds, crushed by the first contact with actuality. Of ordinary people, who did not seem to matter, rising at the touch of death to a sudden dominion, and ruling the living from under the poppy crown. She looked at the quiet body, which resisted with patience the onslaught of rebellious grief. Its invincible serenity in that feverish room was an earnest of its remoteness. Her vision was clarified so that she passed by its animal aspect and saw it in its truer relation. As a poor and battered house, ennobled by the memory that it once held one who afterwards became a king. She passed in imagination from this heated and cupboard-like place, where opposition to the idea had quickened to agony. She saw this dead body under the simple and eternal categories, against the amphitheater of the sky, where no artifice cloaks the august and rhythmic processes of nascent, crescent, and cadent life. Then she perceived how very beautiful, how very intimate it was, as if earth in claiming her handiwork had blessed it. 
she was lifted again into the peaceful dimension where the spirits of death and of life subsist side by side in perfect unison. She and the watcher together rested, as it were, in this lucent place, aloof from the tormenting illusions of mortality. They accepted the vicissitudes of the body, detecting therein certain majestic harmonies which drowned the sharp cry of those from whom this music was wrung. They were at one in this wide and calm vision of things. But there were odd and irreconcilable differences in the reaction to which it urged them. The watcher, it seemed, endured the situation unwillingly. He was stirred and grieved by the incurable torment that he witnessed, and, alarmed by his own sadness, wished to be away. But Constance, though she felt herself to be raised with him beyond the mortal dread of death, felt also a deep dissatisfaction, a miserable shame at being so lifted and fenced from her sisters, who were yet immersed in the agonizing sea of separation. She felt a sudden divine desire to be down amongst them, to renounce in their favor her strange inheritance, to share their mistakes. Her goddess lifted that obstinate veil of hers and looked her between the eyes. It was a glance of peculiar penetration and carried with it a peremptory command. She was infected by a sense of homeliness, by a longing to stay, to stoop, to help. She was in the ranks, and there was an obligation upon her to raise the fallen as well as to prosecute her own advance. Orders were on her, and that mysterious inhabitant of hers started to attention at its call. She must cast down the barriers that she had loved and merge her experience with this life and this death. Oh, do learn to love, said Martin. She wanted to now. She was willing, even in this unattractive school, where a shabby, sallow woman muttered crazily over the death of a tedious old man. Suddenly she lost herself and found instead the mighty battle. She was on her knees beside her fellow-soldier. Her arm was about the shoulders that carried themselves usually with so important an air, and she was whispering scattered, senseless fragments of that immemorial language which all men speak in the presence of death. Helen turned and clutched her spasmodically. Oh, it's black, it's black, she said, and I'm angry, so angry with death. I've been a textbook for other people all my life, and now I'm done for, and life has torn me up. Constance answered, Dear, you were dazed and bewildered at the moment. Do not try to think. It has been a terrible shock, but presently you will see clearly again. I see now. I had never seen death before. This is final. This is the end. That is an illusion which will pass away. Oh, I know, said Helen wearily. I used to say those sorts of things. As they sat cuddled together on the floor, Ra climbed suddenly upon their knees and thrust a cold and importunate nose into his mistress's face. He was a true cat. The neighborhood of the dead induced in him a passionate appreciation of the society of the living. Constance said, Have you fed Ra? Helen replied indifferently, What does that matter? He will die too. Shall I give him dinner? 
Mrs. Reed took no notice. She was again stroking the dead man's hand. Constance took the cat into the little kitchen, found his plate of cold fish, filled his milk bowl, and went back again to Mrs. Reed. The watcher whispered, "'How it hurts! Poor, poor little men and women! How horribly you suffer in your blindness! Always the same thing, the everlasting want of one another. So this is the terrible cry that comes from the spinning earth, the wailing of the souls who are left behind. Oh, what can I do for her?' Tell her to let go. She is clutching as well as loving. She is fighting with the will. After all, she will die too. She has forgotten that. That is one of the things which no one can remember when they want to. It is all blurred for her now. How strange! Does death cover the eyes of the living when he steals the souls of the slain? Well, look at her. She thought she had the light. It is still there, he said, and the idea within it. Death cannot kill the real. It changes nothing. All is well. Can't you tell her? He answered, no. This pain comes of humanity, and its healing must come by way of its humanity, too. You are immersed in it. You are bound to it. You know it. You must see to your own affairs. I know. I see. That... This must be the great matter. It is a cruel illusion, yet many great things are born of it. It is your touchstone of truth, but here you must help one another. It is not for the deathless to interfere. She, humbled by a knowledge of her own ineffectuality, of the uselessness in this primary situation of all her theories of life, could only hold the hands of the half-stupefied woman, keeping her as it were, by mere physical contact in touch with the human side of things. They sat in the dusk, listening to the hiss of the gas stove, clinging to one another, weighed down by a sense of finality, but without any conscious thoughts. There was nothing to say, nothing to do. Constance felt all about her, a world of miserable women, sitting helplessly beside the dead bodies of those in whom they had rooted their lives. Her little heaven seemed stagnant beside the vivid torment of these sisters in purgatory. She longed to join hands with them and share their pain. Sacrifices were going forward, and she stood before the altar of life without an offering. She saw now, faced by this most ordinary of events, that her quest of life should have been not a curious seeking out of adventure, but rather a deliberate nurture, a devout acceptance of the parents of all being, love and pain. She saw them as they stretched through the height and breadth of creation, the sheltering arm and the cleaving sword. Together they made that cross whose divine folly she had resisted with such a petulant contempt. Helen, with her silly creeds and her black despair, had them, she justified herself by their presence, she and a thousand other writhing and tormented souls who little understood the divine quality of their anguish, the destination of that mourning procession into which they had been pressed. They walked a rough road which wounded their feet. They cried under the pain, not recognizing in these ugly scars the birthmark of the royal line. As for Constance, 
she knew that the measure of her serenity was the measure of her failure in the way, and, sitting between the living and the dead, she wept tears of a genuine contrition because she could not weep more. The clang of a bell aroused her. The neighboring church was ringing to evensong. Then she perceived the gathering duskness, woke to practical affairs, and said to Helen, You will want some help, won't you, and arrangements made? I must go, I think, before it is too late, and send someone to you. Do you mind being left alone for a little while? Helen answered, No, no, I shall be quite busy. There are things, plenty of things, that I must do. She looked at her husband. My old dear shan't be neglected, she said brightly. I'm beginning to remember a little. He must not feel lonely, you know. She heard Constance go and the door click behind her. Then she rose and rambled heavily into the kitchen. Ra was asleep in his basket. She looked at him for a moment with pleasure, for he was a living thing, warm, soft, and exquisitely groomed, the only remaining creature that she loved, the only helpless thing dependent on her care. As if even in his sleep he divined her presence, he cocked one ear and raised his nose a little way that she might rub it. She was very glad of his existence. He had always been adorable at this moment. He was important, too. But for him she would be alone with the dead. Then she remembered that this good fortune of hers put the dead man at a disadvantage. It was he who was solitary now in the midst of the living. That was unendurable. That she should yet be surrounded by visible and homely things, whilst he, who had always needed them so much, went out from amongst these domestic consolations, she owed him, at the very least, a parting gift. She stooped and seized on the cat with firm and merciless hands. My dear old dear, shan't be lonely, she muttered. It is so terrible to be alone, to be altogether alone. Ra only cried once, a long, thin cry, and then lay quite still. End of chapter 14